for both of you and the blessings and uh, it will be upon you as you figure out where God leads you next. And, you know, I've just been so proud of our young evangelists, too, and their, their wives, their women's ministry leaders, just the incredible way they lead their ministries. And look so forward to having Clint and Judy here soon, uh, that we'll be able to work with them. And, you know, guys, we're just, we're blessed. We really are. You know, we're going to now renew our series, The Spirit in Acts. You know, last year we left off in Acts chapter 6, in which we saw the choosing of the seven. You see, up to that point, only the apostles were performing miraculous gifts and wonders. But there was a great need, there was a great need for others to show the power of the Spirit. And so through the laying on of the apostles' hands, these seven were also given the ability to perform miraculous gifts. But we learned that they could not pass the gift on. So once the apostles die, and once those who receive the gifts die, then those gifts are no longer present through the miraculous nature. They would have to come through answered prayer. And we'll see more of that as we continue in the book of Acts. But we concluded there in Acts chapter 6 with one of the seven in verse 8. Now Stephen, one of those seven, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So the next two chapters, we're going to see two of those seven by name, Stephen today, and then we'll be going on to Philip here in the coming weeks. God used Stephen very quickly. Here's a young man who was already full of the Spirit because he was baptized as a disciple of Jesus, but then through the laying on of the apostles' hands, was now able to perform wonders just like the apostles. See, the Spirit was multiplying the visible power of God in the early church. However, this did not necessarily make things easier. I'm going to show a little clip from the Bible series. Let's see what happened to Stephen. And then we'll go to the actual biblical account. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You can all be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. He was crucified, but he rose from the dead. Impossible. Don't listen to him. Why do you resist Jesus? He is your savior. The way to everlasting life. Jesus is dead. And you will go the same way. Blasphemer! No! Jesus is alive. They tried to kill him, but they failed. He is a true prophet. I'm a Messiah. What do you know about the prophets? Your prophet put himself above the law. This boy knows nothing. I know the scriptures. Really? And you'll know Deuteronomy. Because he sought to entice you away from the Lord, your God. Your hands shall be the first against him. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies.
the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Very sobering. That's the Bible series interpretation, and if it was biblically accurate, we could end the sermon right there. But there's so much more to Stephen, so much more to what was about to change for the church. This is not the easiest topic to discuss, but we've got to understand as the Spirit leads us, it doesn't always just lead us to great things. It leads us to suffering, to opposition, to persecution, and yes, even death. This is one of the key moments in the history of the church, and the Spirit allowed it. Don't forget, when Jesus received the Spirit of baptism, where did it lead him? Into the desert to be tempted by Satan himself. We've got to understand that if we want to be like the church in Acts, if we want to be led by the Spirit, then we've got to be ready to be like Stephen. So let's go to the actual account. And I'm going to read the entire speech. Fortunately... It's a little shorter than some of mine, okay? But I feel like we need to read every single verse, because I think like this movie, it may show the outcome, but it doesn't show the power and the conviction and the faith of our dear brother Stephen, who was one of the first martyrs in the faith after Christ. In Acts 6, verse 9 through 15, we see this. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Man, could that be said of us? That as people confront us or try to argue with us, that they can't stand up to the wisdom and the way we allow the spirit to speak through us. Well, unless you're in the word daily, guys... You're not going to be able to do that. What's amazing as we go on with this story in Stephen's speech, he had no Bible in his hand. It was not yet fully written. But he obviously had a life of devotion to God and His Word. Most often he had to hear it. You had to go to the synagogue to hear it. You didn't have a copy at home. But he memorized it. And we'll be convicted and amazed at how he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Did you you catch that? They couldn't stand up against him. His honesty, his genuineness, his conviction could not be shaken. So the only way was to lie. The only way was to find false witnesses, as we'll see. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses, sound familiar, who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't know about you, that's a pretty convicting end to that part. Because if I was before the Sanhedrin, being falsely accused, having false witness against me, I don't think an angel's face would be the first thing on me. I think there might be fear, maybe anger, 
frustration, irritation. But Stephen, because he was full of the Spirit, understood that the Spirit may lead him to a place he would not like to go. And yet he had the face of an angel. I don't know what that looks like, but obviously everyone noticed and it was written in the Word. How are we in the face of opposition? What was the result of this Spirit being added, multiplied through the seven? Opposition, persecution, even death. Do you notice that the tactics were very similar to the way they confronted Jesus? They had to bring up false accusations. They had to produce false witnesses. You know, it's kind of like the question, if you were convicted as a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you? Stephen, they had no evidence to prove otherwise, so they had to come up with false things to make him look wrong. Then they have this question, Acts 7-1. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? I, I wonder if in that moment there was any guilt at all. Because of course they're not. They came up with them. They've brought up these accusations. They persuaded people to say them, to say they heard it, and produce false witnesses. What a hypocrite! A high priest, are these charges true? He knew they weren't. And so often us in the world, we can be so firm about accusing others, discriminating others, we don't see the hypocrisy in ourselves. What a question that they asked. Little did they know how this encounter with Stephen would change everything. See, guys, this may seem like just one chapter in a big story of Acts, but this moment was pivotal into fulfilling the Great Commission. See, up to this point, they were only spreading the gospel in Jerusalem. God had said, take it to all nations. But they were being blessed. It was growing daily. God was doing miracles. But they still had not gone as God had commanded them. And God's going, guys, my spirit's going to lead you somewhere. And maybe you have to go through suffering to bring me glory. And he uses Stephen to do it. So now we're going to read. And you can just follow along with me. I'll do my best. It's the longest recorded speech in Acts. More than Paul's, more than Peter's. Stephen, a young man full of the Spirit. Let us read together. Acts 7, verse 2 through 53. Remember they accused him of being against Moses? Notice how much he actually talks about Moses and supports Moses and shows that Moses was leading him to the very conviction he had. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he is in the descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. 
And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great sufferings, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to the Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near to God to fulfill the promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. Obviously ordinary. Most babies cry. I'm sure he did, but somehow he wasn't found in those three months. Pretty extraordinary, I would think. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? That could be a question for us even today. But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush and the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back into Egypt. This is the same Moses, whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt. And at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from among your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. 
They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time that they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You, you have lifted up the shrine of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphon, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out from among them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor, and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. No notes. No Bible. Speaking from his heart with conviction. How many of us could have done that speech? I do this for a living. I don't think I could have done it. Not without a lot of memorization. Young Stephen. Teens, campus students, singles, young adults. There's no excuse for us not to be prepared. He knew the scriptures. He knew the stories. He could speak them from his heart and he spoke boldly. Here they're trying to say he spoke against Moses. He lifted up Moses and helped him to see what Moses was leading to. But when we sum up this whole message, there's really three key points that Stephen makes. The first one is this. The presence of God was never confined only to Jerusalem. Within that story, that speech we read, talked about Abraham in Mesopotamia. So obviously God was there. And in Haran. Joseph was in Egypt. God was there. Moses was in Midian and Egypt. God was with him there. David and Solomon in Jerusalem. God was there. God was never stuck in one place. That ought to encourage us today. We don't need to be in Israel to be God's family and to see God's presence. He can be with us right now in your seat sitting next to you. He can be in your home. He can be at your job. He can be in your school. He can be in your neighborhood. He can be in the great state of Texas, in the great country of America. But are we seeing that presence? Are we honoring that presence? See, we've got to realize, guys, that God isn't just when you come up here. He's with you every step of the way. Which leads to the second point. 
The Jews had a long history of rejecting their leaders, which now had culminated in the very rejection of the Messiah himself. Verse 39 of his speech, he said they refused to obey Moses. The very one they were accusing Stephen of being against. They themselves were disobeying. It says in verse 51, they were always resisting the Holy Spirit. 52, you persecuted the prophets who predicted the Messiah who you crucified. And obviously, they killed the very one that that all led to. The prophet that Moses said that would be like me. Well, how was Moses? A man who spoke for God, a man who gave the law, the word of God, and who could perform miraculous signs. Sounds like Jesus to me. He didn't, they didn't even listen to Moses. See, when we get so stuck in our traditions, we can no longer see the Spirit lead us. Now, we need to have doctrine. We need to have structure. We need to have convictions. But we've got to always be willing to let the Spirit lead us. Well, we won't hear it when that time comes. And maybe we'll deny the very Lord we're professing. And the third point. In spite of all the endeavors and detours caused by men's sin, God was painstakingly moving history toward a promised goal. Did you see it? In that speech, Stephen continued to attribute what God did. Despite the sin of man. Despite the sin of the very people he called to be his. So no matter where your life is right now, maybe it's going great, amen, but don't forget who got you there. Maybe it's going terrible and you feel like there's no hope. Why should I continue on? Because God is painstakingly moving to give you the promised goal. Eternity with him. You've got to hold on to that and believe that. Stephen believed it very strongly as he preached the word. God called Abraham and made a covenant with him. God elevated Joseph in Egypt. God sent Moses to flee and ultimately bring back his people from Egypt. God gave the law and the tabernacle. God drove out the enemies in the promised land. God sent the promised Messiah. What a speech. Are we ready to preach that? That no matter what opposition may come, are we ready to be like Stephen and stand up to death? Stand up to danger? It's a scary thing to admit, isn't it? Scary thing to agree to. I hope none of us do face danger. We can pray for safety. We can pray for God's protection. But we've got to understand, if we want to be a church of the Bible, the Spirit may lead us where we do not want to go. Now, I've never been in a situation exactly like Stephen, but I was in a circumstance where that could have happened. So you know the story, going to the Soviet Union, being there during two of the military coups, bullets flying over our head. Me being the stupid young guy with Tommy Kukta going down to Red Square. That was really smart. Let's die for Jesus. And I'll be honest, that's how I felt then. That would be a lot harder for me today. There's so much more to lose than just myself. I have a wife, a wonderful wife, best friend and soulmate and partner in the faith. Three wonderful children. Friends, family, security. I'll be honest, it would be a lot harder to go down to that red square now. So singles, you got a blessing. you got to look at it that way. I know a lot of times we look down at ourselves when we're singles. You shouldn't. It spares you some of that cost. I hope God does bless you if you desire a marriage and family. But understand with each new responsibility we get... It's the chance that we may need to offer it up to God. 
as we've seen many who are ailing, children who are sick, even dying, as life is difficult. But are we willing to stand up even in that opposition like Stephen and preach the word of God? What was the response? Acts 7, verse 54 through 60. When they heard this, they were so convicted. Wow, you so detailed the story of God and, and Moses and it so brought me to Jesus. That wasn't the response, was it? See, guys, we can share the Bible. We can share the story. But it's up to each individual of how they're going to respond. And I do pray that most of the people you get to share that gospel with, share that story with, and the story God wants to write for them, I pray they do respond well, but be prepared. That as we continue to let God work in us, there might be more who turn away than who join. Narrow is the road that leads to heaven. Wide is the gate that leads to hell. Hey, we want to pray for as many as possible for His glory. But we need to understand how hard it is. You ask the interns. That was a new experience for them as they were in more studies than ever been in their life. And how many they, they just sacrificed for, prayed for, loved up on, and yet in the end still walked away. How painful that is. And yet, it gives you a little taste of what Jesus must have felt like. What Stephen must have felt like at that moment. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth. I guess they were practicing. Because that's where they're going, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you deny the Lord and His truth. But Stephen, even despite their rejection, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. See, that's the secret, guys. That when we face difficulty personally, collectively, persecution or opposition, health issues or financial stresses, we got to look up. We can't look where it is or look at what's coming because that will determine our focus and our faith. But in those moments full of the Spirit, we got to look up and know that there's something greater, something more powerful, that even if death comes, it's not the end for those who are faithful. It's only the beginning. It's our dear sister. God's grace, just last November, in her late years of life, became a disciple, Rachel Wells. God brought her home. That's glorious. That's for His glory. And we pray for the Hickman family because they still suffer the loss. They're still in mourning. Let's continue to pray for them. He looked up, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up at heaven and saw the glory of God. He's about to die. Maybe we don't get to see the glory until we're willing to die. I know that's scary to hear, but it's not my thinking, it's God's. It's the example that Jesus showed, it's the example that Stephen showed. Maybe until we're willing to die, whether it's physically or spiritually dying to ourselves, only then can we begin to see the glory of God. And I believe that's true. How much of my life before I was a disciple, I didn't really see God. I didn't really see how He was working. Only if I got a yes to something I really wanted, maybe I'd go, okay, God's there. But most of the time, I wasn't sure. I wasn't certain. I kind of hoped, but had some doubts. But then in becoming a disciple where I was willing to deny myself, die to myself, man, the glory I started to see in my life and in the lives of others. I love more than anything, more than being up here, 
More than being full-time, it's just studying the Bible with people. Doing what Stephen did, to share the story and to see the response. And what a glorious thing when they respond with openness. They respond with brokenness. But you know, it's also as glorious when they deny him. It's also as glorious when they turn back. Because the word did what it's supposed to do, revealed the heart. And we got prepared to see whatever heart is revealed, including our own. But even if those turn away, studying the word keeps my conviction stronger. And I keep going to the next one. Stephen preached the word. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. How different would our lives be if in the moments of our near-death experience, we could look and we see Jesus. And I have a feeling as he was looking up, Jesus was just smiling. Stephen, would love to keep you around a little longer, but man, this has got to happen. Just as I could only be around three years for my ministry and had to leave to let the Spirit multiply, Stephen, you're going to be part of something great through your death. I know you want to do great things and you preach so powerfully there, Stephen. I'm so proud of you. But Stephen, it's time to come home. Wow. I don't know if that was the dialogue, but I just have a feeling when he saw the face of Jesus, it wasn't fear. It was awe. It was gratitude. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Very important figure that we're going to see in the book of Acts. Who would have thought that it was the fiery faith and conviction of Stephen that would start that journey? Hmm. It's going to be fun to watch the impact of that moment on the life of Saul, who would later become Paul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Now this is amazing, guys, because you've got to understand something. Stephen probably wasn't around because he's of Grecian background. He's got a Greek name. He probably came because he was a Jewish believer as a Greek who came to the Pentecost there, came to the, the, the whole holidays and things in Jerusalem before, after Jesus had already passed. So he may have never seen or heard the death of Jesus. But somehow, because of those who follow Jesus, they tell about how Jesus was, not only in his life, but in his death. Stephen imitates Jesus. How much do we imitate Jesus? Look at Stephen in this incredible moment. Look what he says. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where did he hear that? It was passed on to every disciple. Are we passing that on? Man, I don't know about you, those those people that were throwing the stones, do you think it just made him pause a moment? What? He's not throwing them back? He's not fighting? He's not defending himself? He's actually asking for my forgiveness for this offense? What? You know that had to start something in the heart of Saul, a little prick that God would continue to hit as later we see Why, Saul, you keep kicking against the goad. I am trying to prick your heart. I did it with Stephen. I'm going to do it with every disciple you take to prison, with every disciple that you killed. I am trying to get to you. Do you realize that our death, our sacrifice, our suffering may be necessary for someone else to come to the faith? And that's why it needs to be seen. Even in suffering, 
It's for His glory. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When He had said this, He fell asleep. Just like Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus said, I give up my spirit. And Stephen died. Yet it's funny how the Scriptures doesn't say he died. It says he fell asleep. Because death is not the end for a true believer. Death is not the end for a mighty man and woman of God. To God, he wrote, uh, let's change that. Yeah, I know he died in your realm. He's not dead. He gave up the flesh. It was a nice one, pretty as an angel. But he's with me now. He fell asleep. Rachel fell asleep. She's not dead. Her body may be gone, but she's alive. Wow. What a response. The religious, the legalists, they stoned him to death. But more remarkable than a response, it's just the conviction of Stephen. I want to be like that. If that moment comes, that I can, without having notes, without needing the Bible, because the Bible's written on my heart, that I can share the story of God. And give them at least a chance. And even if they oppose me, I can pray for them. I can pray that God will forgive them. That God won't hold it against them. But that I'm going to live in the Spirit to the very last breath. Stephen's speech in death was pivotal in three very powerful ways. As I close out. Number one. This is a sobering one for us all who claim to be disciples and followers of Jesus. It served notice to the world that Jesus was not the only one willing to die for the gospel and became the inspiration for a whole generation of radical Christians. That's pivotal, guys. Up to this moment, they were preaching only the death of Jesus. Now they could preach the death of every faithful in the Lord. We all have to be willing Pray that we don't have to face it, but we've got to be willing. We all got to be willing to do what Jesus, our Lord, did, what Stephen did, and many others as we read the book of Acts. And even today, many of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and in China and India literally are dying for Jesus. I think we forget that. This is present day. But I don't believe any one of those brothers or sisters, as they're facing their final breath, is looking down in despair. That is looking down in just discouragement. I think they're looking up to heaven saying, I see Jesus! I see my Lord! My friend! And He's calling me home. The second pivotal reason we need to discuss the story of Stephen, it introduces us to the man named Saul and the indelible impression Stephen's speech and death had on him. I believe when Paul later in his writing says, I'm of the sinners the greatest, how much you want to bet the thought of Stephen may have been the first thing in his mind. Guys, you don't realize that when we're faithful in suffering, it could be the pivotal moment in someone's life turning to God. I don't pray for suffering for any of us, but I pray if it comes, we can have the faith that Stephen showed, that our Lord showed, amen? But third, and it really changes from this point on, it lays the theological foundation for a ministry to the Gentiles. 
and then propelled the church outward to the realization of that ministry. See, guys, after Stephen, the church would never be the same. After Stephen, the church would never be the same. Who are the Stephens today? Would the church be different after you? That's a challenge, but that's our calling. I believe our youth want to do that. I believe our singles want to do that. I believe our marrieds want to do that. But the question is, do you, do I want to do that? We're going to see as we continue the story in Acts, this was the pivotal moment that changed everything. From this point on, we're going to see the gospel spread away from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. I'd like to conclude with a poem. It's a poem actually from the late 1700s by Lawrence Tribble. It actually became the theme song of the Great Awakening, which actually was the beginning of our revolution and the foundation of America. Fortunately, I have a video because this poem, these words, were put with music by a great Texas band, Leland. Let us conclude with this video, The Great Awakening. One man awakes, awakens another Second one awakes, his next door brother Three awaken, rouse a town And turn the whole place upside down Many awake will cause such a fuss Finally awakes up the rest of us One man awakes with dawn in his eyes Surely then it multiplies Surely then it multiplies Awakens another, second one awakes, his next door brother. Three awake and rouse it sound and turn the whole place upside down. Many awake will cause such a fuss. Finally awakes with the rest of us. One man awakes with dawn in his eyes. Surely then it multiplies. Surely then it multiplies. Second one awakens his next door brother Three awake and rouse a town And turn the whole place upside down Many awake will cause such a fuss Finally awakes with the rest of us One man awakes with dawn in his eyes Surely then it multiplies Surely then it multiplies Surely then it multiplies Yeah, 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 yeah
minute wakes and wakens another. Second one awakes his next door brother. Three awaken rouse a town by turning the whole place upside down. Many awake will cause such a fuss. It finally wakes the rest of us. One man awakes with dawn in his eyes. Truly then it multiplies. Surely then it multiplies. We're dismissed. Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm.